sermon actually ended up changing quite a bit before I even started putting it together. When I was thinking of this mini-series I was going to do for Gideon within my larger series uh, going through the book of Judges, I've expected these verses to be the fourth part like it is, but I expected this to be titled something along the lines of Gideon's downfall or Gideon's failures, or Gideon's problems, or something like that. Something indicating that this was the part where Gideon's life began to go downhill. And then when I got to actually putting the sermon together this week, I started studying and taking a closer look at the rest of this chapter, and I realized that there was a lot of stuff that I was missing that really put Gideon's character into a different light. And it's those things that I discovered that I really want to focus on as we go through this last part of Gideon's life. So with that in mind, we're going to jump back into Judges chapter 8 and begin reading again at verse 4. It says that Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Succoth, Give my troops some bread. They are worn out, and I am still pursuing Zeba and Zalmona, the kings of Midian. But the officials of Succoth said, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmona in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? Then Gideon replied, Just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmona into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. From there he went up to Peniel, and made the same request of them, but they answered as the men of Succoth had. So he said to the men of Peniel, When I return in triumph, I will tear down this tower. So here we have Gideon, after he had just finished doing some peacemaking, as we talked about last week, now coming to these people and asking for bread for his men. And when they refused to do so, says that he's going to torture the first group and then tear down the tower, which ended up killing many people, in the second group that refused to give him bread. And this can seem like a pretty drastic contrast, that Gideon was just making peace and preventing further conflict, and yet now it seems like he is going to a greater extreme in the punishments that he's going to be giving these men for not feeding his entire army. But when you step back a little bit and and realize who Gideon was asking for bread as, it begins to put things a bit more into perspective. Because Gideon was God's chosen person to lead this army. And so he was leading God's army, and we know that people were aware of this because, as we talked about last week, the people in the Midianite camp knew about Gideon. So surely the other Israelites and people of the area knew about Gideon being God's chosen judge. And so when Gideon was asking for bread for his army, and these people didn't give him the bread that he needed, they were refusing to give God's chosen people what they needed in order to destroy God's enemies. And this wasn't just a refusal to give somebody food. 
It was a rebellion against God himself and his chosen army. And instead, they wanted to sit back because they asked the question, well, do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zomuna in your possession? Have you already taken out the kings? That's what they were asking. Do you have the victory yet? Well, we're, we're not going to give you anything until you've succeeded, until you've won the victory. Then we'll feed your people. In other words, they're saying, we want to wait and see how this plays out before we help you. They were concerned with their own self-interest. And because of that, they refused to help God's people when they were asking for help. They didn't want to side with God and God's army, and then the Midianites conquer them, and, and then the Midianites find out, well, you fed the Israelite army? Well, then they'd be in trouble, and they, don't want to, they didn't want to take that risk. They didn't want to take that gamble. And so they said, well, you know what? We don't want to take either side here. We don't want to take the Israelite side. We don't want to take the Midianite side. We're just going to wait and see how this plays out. And it was because of that passivity and that neutrality that, that was based solely on their own self-interest and a rebellion against God, because of those themes, Gideon judged them. And even in his judgment, we see that he doesn't judge them immediately. See, he could have just as easily killed the people right then and there and taken their bread, but that's not what he does. Instead, he says, I, when I come back, this is what's going to happen. And in doing that, Gideon gave them time to make things right. That after his army left and went ahead, they could have said, you know what? What are we doing? We're, we're taking a stance against God. We need to correct this and gathered some food together and sent a messenger out to Gideon saying, here's the food you requested. Or, or even just some kind of apology, begging for forgiveness, something to show that they changed their mind. But Gideon, by saying, well, well this will happen when I come back was giving them time to change their mind, giving them time to repent and make amends. So Gideon was saying, this is what's going to happen to you. You are going to be tortured. You are going to be killed if you don't change your mind by the time I come back. But you have until then to change your mind. And this is very reminiscent of what God does with the whole world, but if you want a smaller example than that, think about what God did with Nineveh in the book of Jonah. That God sent Jonah to the people of Nineveh to tell them, you have 40 days until my wrath will come against you. You've got 40 days to make amends. And the people of Nineveh did repent. They did turn away from what they were doing and turn to God. And because of that, God had forgiveness for them, and he spared them, much to Jonah's dismay. But that's what God did. And I believe that Gideon would have done the same thing. If he received a messenger, bringing all the bread that they had needed, saying, please forgive us, we made a mistake, it was wrong of us to stand against God's chosen people, 
then Gideon, I believe, would have forgiven them. But we see that that's not what happened. But it did happen with the people of Nineveh. It didn't happen with the people in this passage. But in both cases, the opportunity was given. That opportunity to repent and make amends. And that is something that we all should be willing to do in our own lives. That we always give people the opportunity to make amends with us. That we're always willing, when there is repentance, to forgive, and that we give time for that to happen. Because sometimes, like the people of Nineveh, it takes a second for them to get things right. But if we take that opportunity away from them, then we are doing less for them than what God does for us. Because God doesn't smite us the very first time he's, that any of us sin. He gives us time to recognize the wrong that we have done and repent. And that's what Gideon did, and that's what we need to do as well. So now let's continue on to Judges chapter 8, verse 18. It says, Then he asked, talking about Gideon, he asked Zeba and Zomana, What kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, Those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, Kill them. But Jether did not draw his sword, because he was only a boy and was afraid. Zebra and Zomuna said, Come, do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them, and took the ornaments off their camels' necks. And this is the part that I thought for sure Gideon was in the wrong. Because not only was he executing these men, but he was also making his son do it rather than doing it himself. And I thought, clearly that has to be an issue. But let's break this down a bit further. He begins by asking Zebra and Zulmuna, the Midianite kings, the question, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Now we see in verse 19, where Gideon says, those were my brothers, that he already knows the answer to the question. So this is like a lawyer, right? The rule with a lawyer is you don't ask a question you don't already know the answer to. Gideon knew the answer to the question. So why did he ask the question? Why did he have these men answer and reveal that they had killed Gideon's brothers? The reason that Gideon did this was because he wanted to make perfectly clear why they were about to be killed. Because it was pretty common in that time for kings to war against each other, for kings to fight each other over land and provisions. That's why it talks about, um, with King David, it says that the time came when all the kings were going off to war. Right? That was something that would just normally happen. The kings would go off and fight each other. And Gideon, if he were like any other king, wouldn't need to give a reason or any kind of explanation for why he was killing these Midianite kings. But he 
ask them this question so that they reveal, we killed your brothers, essentially. We killed men like you, each one with the bearing of a prince. And Gideon replies, those were my brothers. Now he's saying this to them, for them to hear. He's saying it for the Israelites there, for them to hear. And he's hearing it for, he, he's saying it for his son, for him to hear. And so what he is doing here is he is letting everyone there know that the reason why these Midianite kings are about to be killed isn't because of some struggle for power and, and wealth and land. He is killing them because they have taken Israelite blood, that they have killed other men. And this was a time when they were still under the Leviticus law. And Leviticus is very clear about the price for taking another person's life. I'll read it to you in Leviticus chapter 24, beginning at verse 17. It says, Anyone who takes the life of a human being is to be put to death. Anyone who takes the life of someone's animal must make restitution life for life. Anyone who injures their neighbor is to be injured in the same manner, fracture for a fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Whoever kills an animal must make restitution, but whoever kills a human being is to be put to death. You are to have the same law for the foreigner and the native-born. I am the Lord your God. This was the law that the Israelites had at this time. Anyone who takes the life of a human being is to be put to death. And Gideon, in his response to these Midianite kings, tells them, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you, showing he does not want to kill these men. But he recognizes that because of the law that God has given to them, that he, as God's appointed judge, is required to uphold God's law in this circumstance. And then he takes it a step further by having his son telling his son to deliver the killing blow. Because anybody could have said, oh, well, yeah, these kings killed his brother. Clearly, he's just in this for revenge. He just wants to get payback against them. But Gideon was showing, I don't need to deliver this final blow. I don't need to be the one to strike you dead. This isn't about me getting revenge. So not only is this not, against, is this not about kings fighting against each other for power and wealth, but this is also not just me getting my payback because I'm willing to let my son do it. And he chooses specifically his son. He doesn't choose his right-hand man or anybody else in his army. He chooses his son, to be the one to strike the blow, because he wants his son to learn this lesson about following the law of God. Now it says that Jether, his son, did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. Now when, it's, when scripture is saying that he was only a boy, we're not talking like a five or six-year-old boy. Remember, the people who were with Gideon right now, at this time, was just him and the 300 men in his army. So with that in mind, we can understand that Jether was old enough to be in the army 
So it wasn't that he was just too young for this, and Gideon was placing this heavy burden on him before he was ready. It's simply saying that he was a young guy. And because of that, that youngness that he had, he allowed himself to be afraid. Now, it wasn't afraid to take life because, again, if he was in the army, that that very evening or the evening before, depending on how much time had passed, that Jether had gone down with Gideon into the Midianite camp to finish them off. So this was someone who was old enough to be in the army, and it was someone that had already taken life. So what was he afraid of? Well, it could have been one of two things. Either he was afraid because the Midianites were kings, and word would get out that Jether was the one who slayed them, and that could earn him some enemies amongst any of the Midianite allies. Or it might have been because the Midianites served Baal, and Jether didn't want to make Baal angry. So either he didn't want to make the Midianites' allies angry, or he didn't want to make Baal angry. That's where the fear was coming from. And in both of those situations, we see the fear coming from not having a trust in God to uphold his law. And then we go back to Gideon, because Zebah and Zomana then tells Gideon, Come do it yourself, as is the man, so is his strength. And we see that Gideon did then step forward and kill them. So he wasn't trying to pass it off to his son because he didn't want to do the dirty work himself or he was fearful of it, because he was willing to do so. But he was using this time, all of this, to try to show the Midianite kings and his son and the rest of his army that there was a difference between murdering people like the Midianites had done, just killing people who had not provoked attack in order to gain wealth and power. There was a difference between that and upholding the justice in the law of God. And Gideon made sure to set apart his actions from the Midianites' actions. He wanted there to be a separation between those things. He wanted to make sure that those lines didn't become blurred to where people could think, especially those in the Israelite army, to think, well, we're just doing the same things that the Midianites were doing. They killed us, we killed them, on and on it goes. But Gideon was saying, if it, if it was just up to me, I would spare your life. But you have killed my brothers, the sons of my own mother. And the law is very clear, the law of God, very clear, that a life must be paid for with a life. The one who took the life must have their life taken away from them. And I, as God's judge, will fulfill what is asked of me, the burden placed upon my shoulders, in order to uphold God's justice. But I want everyone here to know that what we are doing now is different than what kings and armies and murderers usually do. The act of killing here is the same. 
but there is a distinction taking place against murdering people in an unprovoked attack in order to take what they have and making sure that a penalty is paid to those who take innocent life. That's what Gideon was doing here. He wanted to make a clear distinction, as clearly as he could, that the lines here were separate. And I think that shows him having a whole lot of good character. So let's move on to the last part here. Beginning in verse 22, what happens after all of this is over? It says, The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment, and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels, which is about 43 pounds. Not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, or the chains that were on the camel's necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So here we do in fact have a downfall and failure of Gideon. But it doesn't seem like it starts that way. You see, an ephod is what the high priest would wear when doing his priestly duties, including things like making sacrifices at the altar for all of Israelite sins to God. So what Gideon took from them was the plunder of their victory that would be in their households and that would that they would be wearing, right? The earrings, the things that they would be walking around wearing as a show of pride for the victory that they had won. And instead, he took all of those things and he used them to make a holy garment that would be used in praising God. Now, that doesn't sound like he was looking for any kind of special pride to himself. He didn't that he wasn't wanting people to just recognize him. In fact, in this same conversation that's taking place, he refuses to rule over them saying only the Lord will rule over you. You need to let God be your king. Not any person, not any man, let God be your king. And it's with that that he takes the earrings from them. Again, the pride of their victories and melts it down into a holy garment that will be used for serving God. But unfortunately, Israel began to worship that garment. So I don't think that Gideon meant for this to turn out the way that it did. It really does seem like Gideon intended this to be something that was good, but ultimately was used for evil. And so the judgment call that he made here became misconstrued by those who were not on the same page as him. 
whose heart was not in the same position. And so then we do have Gideon's clear failure in that he doesn't make a correction to what they are doing. That he allows them to do so, and because of that, it becomes a snare to him and his family. So he, after all this was over, he takes this perspective and this approach where he says, well, you know, I'm not their king. I turn that down. I want God to be their king. And I meant for this to be a holy garment. And yet here they are worshiping the garment itself rather than God. But you know what? I'm again, I'm not their king. So yeah, maybe it'll go away after a while or eh, it's not really that big of a deal. And for whatever reason, he doesn't address it. He doesn't do what he did with his father's uh, altar to Baal and tear it down. He doesn't take the garment and rip it apart and do something else with it. Instead, he allows it to continue. He doesn't correct the Israelites for using this holy garment for the wrong reasons. And there we do have a failure. The failure of becoming complacent. And so even though he had done so much up to this point, so many great things in the name of God, it wasn't the lack of trust in God to march out onto the battlefield or to even march into his own father's altar and tear it down. He had enough trust to go into the midst of the Midianite camp, his own enemies, and did all of these things in the name of God and in the name of upholding his justice. And yet it was what he didn't do that became his snare. That he wasn't willing to correct the people who had taken what he had given them and used it to drive a wedge between them and God. And he just allowed it to happen. And if as great of a man as Gideon was, was able to allow complacency to ruin his lineage and his legacy, we need to be careful. We need to watch ourselves in our lives and test ourselves and see if we are becoming complacent as well. Do we continue to uphold God's law? Or do we have this idea of, well, we've done enough. It's up to other people now. Because if that's our perspective then we're no longer walking in the will of God. And so I leave us with this question today. How do we represent God's teachings in our world? How do we stand up for his justice and his truth? How do we live our lives that, in a way that's reflective of his own heart, where we are allowing the opportunity for people to repent and make amends? How do we, in the things that we do and say, make sure that we make clear the differentiation between the rest of the world and God's truth? And is it something that we are actively engaged in, or have we become complacent? Because we are meant to be a light in this world. We need to uphold God's 
teachings. We need to uphold the truth of Scripture in our world. How are we doing? And are we more like Gideon during this time when he was acting as God's judge? Or do we look more like Gideon did at the end of his life where we become complacent? And that's today's sermon in the pocket. As always, if you have any comments or questions for me, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me either through the Sermon in the Pocket Facebook page or email me directly at sermoninthepocket at gmail.com. And I encourage you to rate the podcast, give it a good rating so it pops up for more people to see and share it with other people to help get the message out there. But until next time, thank you for taking the time to listen, and I pray that God will bless you as you go throughout your day. Thank you.